Morris Cabrera was sitting in a prison cell in Machacos, Kenya. He looked down at the bare concrete ground and up at the yellow concrete walls. Others passed by and sneered at him. He'd previously been a police officer sending criminals to the prison. Now he was the one locked in a cell. I found a very difficult life in prison. People were, you know, rebuking me every other day, every other corner, and um, telling me, well, you're the one who brought us here, now see it for yourself. We are together. Morris wondered how he'd ended up in this wretched place. He was innocent of the robbery and violence charges that now marred his record and stole his humanity. So I was wondering what would happen to my young children, what would happen to my young wife. I thought this is going to destroy my life. And if my life is destroyed in such a manner, then I'm not worth living. I'm Christy. And I'm Chris. We're two college students sharing the stories of overcomers around the globe who love God and love others. On today's episode, we'll hear about Justice Defenders, the nonprofit that empowers Morris to defend himself in court and receive a legal education. We'll also learn about Morris's fight for order, respect, and dignity within the Kenyan prison and court system. Finally, we'll hear about how Christ suffered the punishment that we deserved to set us free. This is about a Kenyan man who offers forgiveness. This is about Christ, the ultimate advocate and sacrifice for our sins. This is Two Coins. My name is Maurice Caberia. Currently, I'm living in Machacos. Simple Charity founder Brian Grosso had the opportunity to visit Morris in Machacos just about a year ago. You'll get a sense of the town from Morris's audio clips as he guides Brian on a car trip and in court. Just bear in mind that some of these audio clips sound a little bit like they were recorded in a tunnel. You'll also hear Morris and Simple Charity intern Matthew Brigg talking over Zoom. In photos, Morris stands with impeccable posture. He has a shaved head and a lively smile. He seems like a popular guy. During the middle of an audio recording, people will often call out to greet him. Morris has had a love for others since his childhood. Whenever he'd sit down for a family meal or a primary school lunch break, he'd consider the needs of his more impoverished classmates. Since my childhood, I had um, I had a soft heart for people who are vulnerable. People like the poor, yeah. I usually I would use to take my food instead of eating my food. I ran away from my mother and take it to children, fellow children who I knew one did not have lunch or did not have food. So as Morris grew older and passed through the grades, he thought of a new way to care for others. Maybe he could become a lawyer so he could advocate for others in need. Though I had um, an ambition of becoming a lawyer from when I was young, and I failed to do my to pass my exams properly, so that's why how I joined the police, and I joined the police because. I thought that is, that is where I could meet with law. But working for the police force didn't actually pan out the way that Morris had anticipated. Though he wanted to defend justice, he soon realized that the police force was doing the exact opposite. In Kenya by then, uh, when I was working with the police force, 
the major value for a police officer was maybe getting bribes mm. you know and that was corruption you know it, it didn't matter to you whether the person is innocent or not provided someone is giving out money for you Morris said that to make a living wage police officers arrest people who've committed no crime at all then those people go to court and very often end up in prison so we destroy someone's life someone's family uh, just because of a bribe Over time, Morris watched himself get drawn into the police force's manipulation and deceit. He began demanding bribes from Machaco's community members or threatening them into giving him money. I could demand bribes, ask for bribes. I could uh, threaten people, all those things I could do. That boy who had once offered his bread to hungry neighbors and passed his school milk carton to classmates now found himself stealing other men's profits he began to despise the man he had become. I, I could not fit into the system. Angered at what he had seen, Morris approached his bosses. So this is how I started uh, complaining to the, my bosses that sometimes we are taking people to courts when whereas we are not even investigating their cases. We, we just do take someone to court because somebody else, a complainant, has come with some money. Morris's passion aggravated his bosses. If he exposed the police force's corruption, his bosses worried that they'd lose their authority and wealth. Soon they saw him as a threat and decided to seek revenge. Then came the false accusation. But it happened that... Uh, one way or the other, I, I got into the wrong books of my bosses and I was fixed in the case of robbery with violence, which I'm sure even didn't occur. Morris had been arrested. But why? What was I arrested with? He hadn't taken anything. He hadn't harmed anyone. The police provided no reasoning to him. He'd been betrayed by his own co-workers. Morris was locked in a jail cell, lonely and confused. He tried to interact with other inmates. Morris thought they may be able to explain his situation. But he soon learned that the other inmates wouldn't accept him. He was the enemy. They could not accept me as I was a police officer. I'm one of the people who brought them to prison. I found a very difficult life in prison. People were, you know rebuking me every other day, every other corner, and um, telling me, well, you're the one who brought us here, now see it for yourself, we are together. And I felt that uh, I was not even worth it. And it only got worse. Within the first month that Morris was in prison, something terrible happened to the man who had been accused alongside him. My co-accused died while in prison. He died out of sickness. If his co-accused didn't survive, Morris didn't think he would live either. He had to get out of this nasty, brutal compound. He thought that there was a good chance that he'd fare well in court. After all, he was innocent. During Morris's first few court appearances, he had money to pay for a lawyer. But as time went on, he ran out of funds and had to start representing himself. You'll go to court without the knowledge. Mm-hmm. You'll go to court even, we cannot know how, what kind of defense to give to the court. Legal jargon spun in Morris's head. 
He felt fortunate that he was literate and could understand some parts of the documents. As he read the documents, he learned that he was being charged in a falsified case of robbery and violence. All the quote-unquote stolen evidence that the court used to prove Morris was a robber, it actually all belonged to Morris. The prosecution was arguing I had been arrested in possession of uh, complements items like a phone and bank card and a national identity card. Um, that um, for sure I was arrested in possession of my own documents, my own identity card, my own bank card, my own um, phone. I had nothing belonging to anyone. On his court date, he arrived at the Machacos High Court among many other defendants. They crowded in the waiting room with little knowledge of what lay ahead. Each defendant's case would receive an allotted time slot. And if the hearing went over, their trial would be continued to the next open day likely months later. Soon Morris was led into a small courtroom with a slanted ceiling. Observers sat on benches and bars made of cinder block. In the front of the room, the judge sat on a black plush swivel chair. He placed a piece of lined paper on his desk to scribble handwritten notes. There were no stenographers, no audio recording devices, and no court reporters typing rapidly on laptops. As Morris scanned the room, he noticed the complainant, who had entered through a seafoam green-colored door. The complainant brought a few items that caught Morris's eye. Then when the complainant stood up to testify, those items became his evidence. He came with his ID card, he came with his phone, and produced them in court as things which had been stolen or robbed from him, and which he had recovered. And um, I was very sure that I did not do this offense. So mm-hmm. I tried to arguing courts uh, in a manner to try and bring a clear picture to the courts on the truth of the matter. But no one could hear me. Morris knew that the police had records in a book that would show he was innocent. The notes would prove he hadn't stolen any of the items from the complainant. Police failed to bring the Okare's book because they knew that was, was going to destroy their case. Because in the Okare's book, it showed clearly that these properties were mine. I underwent an unfair trial, and in the end, I was convicted. At the time of Morris's robbery and violence conviction, the court had very limited punishment options. Sentence lengths didn't depend at all on the gravity of the criminal offense. It was just death sentence and life sentence, and you had to remain in prison forever. Three hours later, Morris found out that he had been sentenced to death. I'm appalled that someone would be arrested and then sentenced to death on such meager evidence. Were courts in Kenya always this shoddy with their cases and decisions? On today's Crash Course, Chris and I will discuss the criminal justice system in Kenya. So, Gary Haugen, in his book, The Locust Effect, reported that of nine African countries that he studied, these had a population of 114 million people total but they only had 2,550 lawyers. That's the same number of lawyers as the state of Vermont, which has a population of 600,000. 
So as you can see, there's a huge imbalance between the number of lawyers that we have back here in the States and the access we have to our judicial system, and then the access and the number of lawyers in places like Kenya and throughout Africa. Foreign Policy magazine reports that Kenya's population was 41.4 million, but there were only 53 judges and 330 magistrates. I can imagine that that issue with the number of judges would create a huge backlog in the Kenyan court system. Is that true? There is indeed a very large backlog. Um, Foreign Policy reported that in 2010 or so, the backlog was roughly over a million cases. And so, as you might imagine, this could create a desperation to have your case heard. And so bribery is very prevalent. And one of the things that a bribe can accomplish is to have your case moved to an earlier date. Yeah. So with so much bribery, like you mentioned, um, first of all, is it really prevalent? And second of all, how does that impact Kenyan's opinion of the judicial system? Yeah, bribery is a rampant infestation in the judicial system in Kenya. There's a popular joke in Kenya that says, why hire a lawyer when you can buy a judge? In 2010, Foreign Policy Magazine reported that 43% of Kenyans who sought judicial services reported paying bribes. So this contributes to the perception of the judicial system as unfair, rigged, corrupt. Mm-hmm. So beyond corruption, could you tell me a little bit about how a trial would proceed in Kenya? Well, I think, again, Gary Haugen's book, The Locust Effect, is really insightful on this topic. And he says specifically for the Kenyan judicial system, trials aren't conducted from start to finish in a few days, like we might expect. But they actually happen very piecemeal. He says one bit at a time over months and years. Courts hear evidence and argumentation on one piece of the case on one day and then stop the trial. The next portion of the trial is then not heard until months later. With common adjournments, postponements, and delays, it can easily be six, nine, or 12 months between each day of the trial. So he says that a four-day trial will easily take 12 to 24 months. So that's, I mean, thinking about a four-day trial turning into a year or two years Mm -hmm. uh, where your future is essentially in limbo, that's, that's a very terrifying prospect. That's crazy. So I imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong, that with the low number of lawyers, and the fact that not everyone has tons of money, a lot of people would actually end up defending themselves. Yeah. Again, the judicial system is very skewed against people who are poor, both because of bribes and also because the government doesn't provide a lot of legal help for those without resources. So whereas in the US, there might be a good public defender, sometimes not so good one, regardless, you probably will have one, right? Um, but in Kenya, it's not always the case. The Economist reports that justice offenders under their previous name, African Prisons Project, they've helped about 65 Kenyan prisoners, all of whom are either in prison for life or on death row. They've provided these prisoners with classes in law. And so they've actually had their law papers, briefs sent back and forth between London and Nairobi, and they've been able to get their law degrees from London University. In one prison, the Kamidi Prison, Mm -hmm. prisoners and warders often attend class together, sometimes even helping each other with homework, The Economist reports. Oh, that's cool. Shout out to Justice Defenders. It's really awesome. We last left Morris as he entered a new section of confinement where he would await his execution. When I got to the death chambers, I I was completely um, uh, disoriented. I felt like This is it. The inhumane conditions quickened Morris's distress. 
Fellow inmates shared cautionary tales and told Morris to brace for continual suffering. Sleeping on the ground, you know, sleeping in congested um, rooms, cells, poor diet, you know, poor health services, no legal services. I found people who had been in prison for 30 years, 20 years, and they always told me that uh, I prepare myself for such a long period in prison. So I was wondering what would happen to my young children, what would happen to my young wife, a wife I had married in 1999 and got into prison in 2005 after a very short period of living with her. So mm-hmm. I thought this is going to destroy my life. And if my life is destroyed in such a manner, then I'm not worth living. I even contemplated committing suicide. One day, a fellow prisoner named William noticed how distressed Morris looked and told me, gentlemen, why, why do you look disturbed? Can I help you? Morris was skeptical that William could be of any help. But then William said he was quite familiar with prison. After all, he'd lived there for 40 years. If William was suggesting that Morris would likewise remain in prison for 40 years, that seemed dreadful. William actually presented another idea. Morris could study the law. Then he may be able to return to court and effectively appeal his death sentence. And he told me, you know, you are going home. What you do, you just join us in the academy. Come and learn, come and get education. It will get you out of here. To Morris, the proposal seemed unreasonable. I told him, no, I can't do that. I'm too old for that. That's only my sons, my children who can do that. It's not me. Can't, can't go back to school. And furthermore, I even used to go back to school when I was young. Not now. <laughs> so I refused. Despite Morris's pushback, William persisted. But he kept on, you know, pestering me. And uh, one day he left me with a criminal law book. And when I flashed through the pages, I found a page where they were talking about uh, disclosure of evidence by the prosecution. This seemed auspicious. Disclosure of evidence was the very issue that Morris needed to argue about to win his appeal. He needed to show that the items his complainant had brought to court were false evidence. Over time, that law book became his hope for a new life, a life outside of prison. As he studied the law day and night, he decided to pursue a law degree, or LLB, through a nonprofit called Justice Defenders. Justice Defenders is a nonprofit that trains paralegals and lawyers within defenseless communities to provide legal services for themselves and others. And yes, that means that prisoners can get a law degree while in prison. They also do weekly workshops on legal questions that are open to anyone in the prison. Justice Defenders operates within four African countries Sudan, Gambia, Uganda, and Kenya. Justice Defenders has a three-pronged model. First, it teams up with schools like the University of London to help prisoners and prison officers achieve law degrees. Second, it trains prisoners and prison staff to become auxiliary paralegals. And third, it establishes law practices within prisons and provides free services. Morris was eager to join the University of London's law program through Justice Defenders. But to join, he would need to present the certificate he had received from his undergraduate studies. So I tried to join the law class, 
I was told, first of all, I have to get a certificate. I sent for my certificates from home. They couldn't be traced. My wife couldn't get them. My mother couldn't get them. And I think it was my father who had kept them somewhere. And he had died. So no one would trace them. I almost gave up. I met a certain priest who was visiting prison. And I told him what I wanted to do with my life in prison. And uh, the frustrations I was getting because of I couldn't have the certificate. But when Morris spoke with the priest, the priest noticed Morris had a struggle even deeper than losing his certificate. Morris was harboring resentment in his heart. You have a lot of grudges in your heart. Try and release all those people who have forsaken you and forgive them and be yourself. Let's start a life, start a new. I asked him, how would I do that? How can I be able to forgive someone who has brought me in prison for nothing? Can it be possible? But the priest said it was possible. He started engaging with Morris, sitting near him at church and teaching him about forgiveness. One day he told me, now I want you to go and sit down, write the names of everybody, every person who you have wronged, and any other person who has wronged you. Morris said that task lasted late into the night. As he printed the names, they started to fill lots and lots of pages. I had so many enemies. <laughs> as Morris looked over the list, he began to understand the depth of his resentment. Just as the priest had told him, he truly had become imprisoned to disdain and anger. And then I told God, see now, this is the burden I'm carrying in my heart. It's the burden I'm carrying in my mind. I'm always thinking of this person who brought me to prison for nothing. I'm always thinking of this person who stepped on my toe the other day. I'm thinking of this person who insulted my mother. I'm thinking of this other person who did all those things. And um, I don't have that freedom in my heart that, to create a space for you so that I can have faith in you and believe that everything is possible in your name, the way you always tell us. Though Morris felt enslaved to anger, he looked to Christ's model of forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus bore the world's sin. Instead of each person receiving the rightful penalty for their sin, Jesus took the full punishment of God's wrath. So I asked God, give me that strength to forgive all these people. And I approached a priest who advised me to ban that list. He told me, the way you've burnt that list, that's the way you should now remove all that baggage from your heart and create a space for Jesus. Let that space be filled by the love of God. And you as a person, now start spreading that love to your neighbors, to your colleagues. As God taught Morris to forgive and to love, Morris began to reflect on his imprisonment. He was innocent of the robbery and violence the court had convicted him of. But had he really been innocent before God? No, Morris thought to himself. On the day he had received the death sentence in that small, crowded courtroom, he had still been a selfish, deceitful man, someone who had bribed and threatened his Kenyan brothers. And uh, Jesus passed through a lot, a lot of pain, and he was very innocent. Even more innocent than I. Because at, 
at least with me, I knew as, in as much as I was innocent on this case, yes. I had some other scenes and evil you know, things which I've done in my life. But Jesus died on the cross, being very clean. And he forgave them. Father, forgive them. I asked myself, why would he do that? That's when I realized that uh, when he died, he lasted for us, for the love he had for we human beings. And uh, he saw that the only way he could be able to save us from the wrath of God, his father, was through repentance. Yeah. So I embraced repentance. And I started thinking about it and reading so much about repentance. Yeah. And I started feeling like uh, getting that momentum to forgive. As Morris experienced God's forgiveness more and more, he felt God calling him to forgive one last person. I, I ultimately forgave the guy, the gentleman who took me to prison. While forgiveness is so hard to offer, Morris knew it was the Lord's will for him. In today's 3 a.m. theology, Chris Bryan and I will discuss the unmerited gift of forgiveness. One thing that Morris says during the episode is that he loves the way that Jesus forgave him so much that he can't imagine not offering that to others. Mm. And when I heard that, that was so convicting for me, just to hear how much he cherished that forgiveness that Jesus offers him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where it's easy to have the right Christian answer. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, if you forgive other people, that's how your father's going to forgive you. And um, it's like, yeah, the right Christian answer is that we should forgive others. Um, Mm -hmm. But then we think of the like actual instances in our lives where we feel like we've experienced some kind of injustice. And then the idea of Christian forgiveness becomes really hard and kind of radical. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I think that goes to the heart of the Christian life, right? God mm -hmm. calls us to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses daily So the Christian life isn't easy. Forgiveness requires us to die to ourselves and to put away our pride and the the sense that we're right. And maybe we are, but it still requires us to sacrifice something, I think. Yeah. And Morris himself, there's a point in in the the episode where he says, how can I be able to forgive someone who has wronged me in prison? It cannot be possible. And that really stood out to me because forgiveness apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit, Forgiveness on our own strength is frankly just impossible Hmm. to truly forgive in the kind of way that Christ himself exemplified that requires supernatural intervention in our lives. It requires a Holy spirit flowing through us. Yeah, totally. And I I think something that was so powerful too, in Morris's story was that part um, when he was just talking about how he, and he was actually telling me this when we were in the car we were giving him a, a lift back to Nairobi from Machakos because in, when you're traveling in Kenya, when you hang out with someone, they might just ask you for a ride. Uh, <laughs> it's just like part of culture there. But anyways, on that trip, Morris was talking about, you know, how he had this moment of revelation where he was like, yes, I have been wronged or I have experienced injustice, but it's more than that. Like I've actually committed injustice and he he comes to this point of realizing that he's not innocent, that he yeah. has asked for bribes, that he's beaten people, that he was a corrupt police officer in Kenya. Yeah. And um, 
I think that's that plays a role, you know, in forgiving others. Um, totally. I mean, yeah, that's true for all of us, right? Like, okay, yeah, exactly. Maybe not all of us have committed uh, bribery <laughs> or corruption, but all of us, according to the Bible, have sinned, have fallen short from the glory of God. That goes back to a point you mentioned earlier, Brian, which is that forgiveness is rooted in in God forgiving us. Yeah. So, yeah, Jesus does command. He says you know, forgive other people. If you don't forgive other people, your heavenly father will not forgive you. So forgiven people, forgive others. Grace begets grace. I think that's incredible. I think I really went through an experience myself when I, when I felt at my lowest and I felt Mm -hmm. unforgivable by humans. That's when I realized that God was there to forgive me and he had grace for me and all my sins. And I think when I understood um, my sin at the greatest depth and I felt as weak and as kind of wretched as I did, that's when I understood God's grace the best and God's love for me. Mm. The, the way that I kind of got to that point of understanding forgiveness was actually through my brother mm. um, when I was young. So my, my brother and I, whenever we would fight and have these like kind of, we'll say minuscule disagreements or, um, <laughs> you know, so when I started to understand this forgiveness for my brother, that's when I kind of realized, oh, I need this. Um, Mm. This is good for our relationship. And so then when I understood that God forgave me, that was huge for me because I understood the depth of that forgiveness and how important it was. And it wasn't just taking time waiting and forgetting that the other person had wronged you. It was actually saying, I recognize that you wronged me, but I forgive you for it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We are transformed as we realize and understand that we are forgiven. Yeah. But no. there's also this aspect of when we hang on to bitterness, we are always the ones who lose the most. <laughs> mm. um, and we experience a kind of freedom by learning how to forgive others. And so when Jesus forgives us, he like teaches us really a way of walking and living that's just more free. It's less encumbered by bitterness and regret and distorted relationships. But it isn't easy, right? It's still a death. A death. It's yeah. still dying yeah. to ourselves. Yeah. It's still a crucifixion of our pride. So I don't want any of our listeners to think that just because there's this theology of forgiveness that the, the practice of forgiveness is any easier. I think it's, it's one of the most difficult things that, that we can mm-hmm. do in life, but um, it's also one of the most freeing things as well. Morris knew that God had changed his heart and had given him the strength to forgive. As he sat in prison, he wondered if God could also help him get into that law program that William had told him about. One night, he made a special request to an officer in prison. Could he have his own cell so he could pray to find the certificate he needed to register in law courses? So I slept there praying. I asked God, because God, I see you like you are listening to me. It's like you are hearing my cry. And uh, at least I've seen that you've changed me. You've even made me able to forgive. Can you give me just one thing? Can you let me get registered in this course? Just one week later, Morris received an unexpected visitor to his prison cell. Then country director came and asked me for my index number and told me, you are so passionate. I don't want to leave you out. 
can I go and try to get your certificate from the Kenya National Examination Council? Wow. So he went there and got my certificate. I've oh, never even wow. seen it. Up to now. <laughs> what an unforeseen blessing. After the director found the certificate, Morris had to complete just a couple additional classes, and then he was able to enroll in the law degree program at the University of London through the nonprofit Justice Defenders. And after that, I got it after one year, one month. I went to court for my appeal, represented myself, wow. and I won my appeal. Wow. Actually, I did my appeal on the 18th, and the judge gave me just two days to go for my judgment on 20th, September last year. And I was released. Now, after release, that's another life. Since Morris's release after 13 years in prison, he has continued working for Justice Defenders, formerly known as African Prisons Project. Decades ago, when he dreamt of becoming a lawyer, he had no clue what career lay ahead. This is the work I still do today, even after I came out of prison. Africa Prisons Project, who I would say, uh, like my parents, uh, mm. took me in and employed me as a legal advisor. I was then transferred, or rather stationed at the Machakos main prison. I am in charge of uh, the lower eastern region prisons, and uh, this is where now I'm currently working. Now, a photo shows Morris standing in front of the yellow concrete Machakos main prison in a striped button-down. He smiles and squints to protect his eyes from the bright Kenyan sun. And um, many people even wonder, how do you come out of prison and go back again to prison, visit even prison? I tell them, I, in as much as I'm not getting back as a convicted person, I'm getting back to visit my brothers and sisters there and find out the problems they are going through, especially legal problems, so that I can be able to assist them. I go back to prison because that's my home. It's my second home. Morris knew the country wasn't widely aware of the abuses in the Kenyan prisons. So he shot high. He got an opportunity to expose the corruption to the Kenyan vice president. The, the vice president had our cry and we told him, visit the prison, yeah. not visit the, the, the compound. Yeah. Visit the prison and the prison is the cells. Yeah. Go there and see for yourself what is happening. Yes. So he went into the prisons. There were so many lies and bed bugs. You know? There were no mattresses, wow. there were no blankets. Wow. So when he visited the prison, inside the prison, that's when things started changing. He said, no, people cannot be treated like this. So he decided to open the prison doors. And uh, from there, things changed. Because now anyone could visit prison. Human rights could come into prison. And uh, if there are issues, they could be raised. Yeah. He could go out there, the media, the public. Yeah. He, he first of all took the step of bringing mattresses wow. and blankets and uh, disinfectants to kill the lies and the bedbugs. And then he, he introduced uh, the, the bus system. Before we were being ferried in some weird lorries. But these days, at least there is some humanity in prison. Through his efforts.
Beyond prison, Morris helps justice defenders push for much-needed reforms in the Kenyan courts. Remember how Morris's conviction came along with a mandatory death sentence? The circumstances and the gravity of the offense didn't matter. In 2017, a justice defender's law student named Wilson Kinua brought a case to court arguing that not all convicted criminals should be killed. So we took in the Supreme Court. We won the case and uh, the court declared mandatory death sentence unconstitutional. It was a step towards freedom of so many people who had been convicted and sentenced to death and life imprisonment. And this will see hundreds of people uh, leave prison now and uh, become free men. Morris said his motivation for pursuing justice is his personal experience. He remembers the terrible conditions and abuse he underwent as an inmate. The first time when I entered prison, they told me not to talk to an officer without squatting. I looked at him and asked him, don't you remember I'm an officer? How can I squat for you? Who are you? And they slapped him. And I slapped him back. I was beaten thoroughly for almost two hours. Beaten until I was taken to hospital. After a week at the hospital, Morris had returned to prison. He was determined that no other inmate would suffer the same abuse that he did. Whenever I could see an officer mistreating a fellow inmate, I raised my voice. And I was beaten on his behalf. I was beaten several on behalf of other inmates, just because of raising my voice. But then that voice continued, and I persisted. As justice defenders continues to fight the corruption and injustice in the Kenyan prison and court system, Morris hopes that more people will consider donating. He wants more people to experience restoration in this world so they can taste just a small part of God's character. We've managed to acquit around 900 inmates so far this year. And uh, we are still continuing and we are proud of what we are doing. We would like to be in, in almost every prison in Kenya, but we are restrained by finances. We would hope that people get to hear this and feel the need of chipping in and maybe helping us reach so many other people because injustice anywhere in this world is injustice everywhere. If Morris's story was meaningful for you, I encourage you to visit Justice Defenders on Facebook, Instagram, or their website. You can support prison and legal reform in Africa by donating to Justice Defenders through Simple Charities website. And if you think it's important for other people to hear this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This will help get Morris's story to more listeners. I'd like to thank Morris for sharing his story with us, Brian Grosso for guiding us through this process, and Angela Tofik for editing, sound engineering, and illustrating. I'm Christy. And I'm Chris. We'll be back soon with our final episode, the story of a woman in the Congo who empowers other women to reach their full potential as image bearers of God.